pony, right? Yep. Nailed it. Okay. Oh, and I accidentally started recording, so here we are. <laughs> Yay! Uh, this is another episode of The Artistic Director. I'm sitting here with Jenny Mahoney. Jenny, I kind of know this answer, but how are you doing right now? Uh, I have bronchitis. <laughs> and you are a badass for sitting down with me <laughs> and still doing this interview. No problem. Okay, uh, so Jenny, for the listener who doesn't know you, uh, can you give a brief history of uh, your life in the theater world that led you to be one of the co-artistic directors of id theater sure i started out as a playwright or actually i started out as an actor and then i became a playwright um and then uh ended up going to the national playwrights conference in 1997 and discovered play development as something that i was really interested in and i didn't know why there wasn't more of it and uh i mean long story short sheila and i sheila the other co-artistic director of id we just sort of met at the perfect moment. I knew that she was doing, we, we both have homes in Idaho and in New York, hmm. and we kind of met at this perfect moment, and I had this wacky idea about doing play development in Idaho, and she said, oh, we hadn't scheduled anything for next year, why don't we try it? And 17 years later, here we are. That's beautiful, that's beautiful. So I'm gonna start out with a big ambiguous question. Uh, feel free to answer it any way you want. I ask all of my guests this, uh, but the question is simply, what is your artistic direction? Hmm, okay. Well, I think the, the core of my artistic direction is that uh, working in development, I believe that the best play that you can find is the play that most clearly communicates what the playwright is intending. Hmm. So uh, it's sort of the principle we work on here, whether we're working with a well-established playwright or even with a student playwright, is that if we get them to do the best work with their story, not kind of putting in what we think would be great, that's going to just be the best version of that play. And that taking our egos out of it and our ideas about what it should be is a really challenging thing to do. It seems really simple, but it is uh, really challenging. And so I guess that's sort of where I, everything I, I do comes from. Nice. Um, so how would you, if you're a director or an actor in a play, how do you go about to start to understand what is the playwright's intention truly? Because you have your own interpretation of that and then you can start to get removed from it. Yeah. Well, and it can be hard when you don't have the playwright there. I mean, yeah. obviously it's much easier when the playwright's there or, or sometimes it is. I mean, to, to me, there are ways to look at a play and sort of look for that sort of thing. I have little tricks that I do for myself in terms of just looking at how the play is constructed and where it's taking me as a landing place and, and how I'm going to get there. I kind of feel like uh, we spend a lot of time right now, uh, you know, sort of generally trying to figure out what our part is in the work of a play. Mm. But I actually think what makes a play really strong is when the playwright is um, when the playwright uh, gives us enough to go on so that we can like the, my work as an actor should not be figuring out what the play's about my, I want I don't and I don't want my actors trying to figure out what the play's about I want to leave them plenty of room to try to embody it and get deeper and deeper with it because that's also going to make this play stronger if the actor is able to find their roadmap. And, uh, and follow that. And if the director's able to find their road, roadmap, they can do their job better. So in a way, I sort of feel like this sort of idea that we don't, we don't want to tell people what to do or whatever is, I also feel like it's kind of false because actually, 
simply by putting together a play in the order that you put it in, like the way you presented this information, you, you're already doing it. Like there's not any world in which we are not um, manipulating uh, reality. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So you've seen a lot of new plays, and I'm curious, do you have advice for the playwright uh, in order to, I guess, make their play translatable to an actor? Yeah. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice is to own it. You know, yeah. don't don't pretend like you're not telling people <laughs> what they should be doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, in sort of an associated way, don't keep secrets unless they're necessary. Mm. I think that can be confusing. And there's no need to... Like, there are plenty of secrets. And let the secrets that you leave secrets be meaningful. Hmm. What, what do you mean by secrets? I'm, I'm curious. Like A lot of times, you know, we'll come across a moment where somebody will say, like, well, you know, did they really go to the bar or not go to the bar? And if that's the whole mystery of the play, that's fine. If it's not and it doesn't matter, just say it. Yeah. Because, and again, this is like the whole thing, like the actor doing their job. Like, I don't want the actor sitting around forever trying to sort out which one it is if that's sort of immaterial to the play. I want to spend their time on some mystery or secret that's actually significant. I see. I see. Uh, so I'm curious, you've seen a lot of new works. Are there things that you see plays over and over again falling into? Are there sort of tropes that you see the modern playwright uh, going after? And if there are, you're shaking your head. Uh, uh, are, are, what, what are they? Ooh, there's a lot. I think we, we see a lot of plays that I'm not sure why. I'm not quite sure what why the playwright picked that topic or picked those characters. A lot of plays are like really smart, really well done, really well constructed, but they're missing the heart. And then other plays where there's like a lot of heart, but it's a mess and I have no idea. I can't, uh, it's hard for me to pull something out of. And it's sort of like, I want you to just have an impression. Um, and I don't think that that's, um, I don't think either one of them is going to give you the strongest possible result. But that's just my opinion. Okay. I'm sure, because, you know, I know there are other people who would say, like, well, that's exactly... I mean, pe the people who do that do that because so some of them do it accidentally, but a lot of people do it because that's what they want to do and that's what they believe and that's great. Which is not my thing. Yeah. Also, I do not like plays that take place in Manhattan apartments and where there's, like, a professor and he's sleeping with someone um, and also his wife is sleeping with someone and one of them is gay and they have a child who's angry. So, yeah, that play I probably would not want to do. Yeah, it's the it's the infamous when you're in college you write a play about a a college person in a dorm room and it's just like every other one. Here's my beef. This uh, that's a good one. My <laughs> beef is um you know, people say write what you know. Mm -hmm. I think that is the most misunderstood saying in theater because mm -hmm. It doesn't mean write the life you know, because if all of my plays were like about middle-aged white ladies, it would be so boring. Who would want to see that? But um, I think what it means truly is you can only write from your own humanness. And so if I'm, being, if I'm taking on a character that is not me and that I don't know, I can only write what it is to be them from knowing what it is to be me. Hmm. I can't pretend to be them. I can only be me, and I can try and put myself in their shoes in whatever way that I'm trying to do that, but I can only do it from me. 
Yeah. Yeah, I see. What happens? I've I've run into this a lot with playwriting where I have a I have a character that I feel like isn't quite genuine because I haven't had an experience mm-hmm. from this, and it always I feel like it. You can tell when a character feels flat if you read it out loud and it doesn't yeah. feel like an actual person or if you're doing the thing. Uh, my biggest pet peeve is when people write dialogue that's uh, on-the-nose dialogue just yeah. saying what they're feeling out loud. This is a big question, but how do, you, how do you take that humanness that you have and put it into someone that you are not and make it feel real and alive and full? Oh, it's super hard. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, like, I know. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing about on-the-nose dialogue, which is an easy, easier one to answer, is, uh, you know, the best thing for that is going out and just writing down actual dialogue while it's happening, and not, not writing it down, like, after you've heard it, but actually, like, writing it down while it's happening, because really, people do not, you know, I've asked students before, like, really, is that what you said to your friend? Like, Bob, I'm really worried about you. You've been upset lately. No, but, pe- but you think you're saying that. What we say is actually quite different. So the best way to kind of get yourself out of that is to actually, you know, and look like a creeper yeah. and write stuff down while it's happening. Um, somebody that you don't have the experience of or knowing, uh, you know, it's a great, um, you know, Eric Bogosian quote, actually, which is if you don't, if you don't know, I, I'm, getting, I'm bastardizing it in some way, but if you don't know a character, look in the mirror. I mean, I just think, you know, you have to really look at in your in yourself for the answers to that. And, and any time in a play, if you're looking outside, you're um, probably not going to find what you're looking for. Yeah. It's really looking. It's actually, I remember one time Adam Rapp said to me, so it was so painful, he said to me something about, he was writing this play and it felt like he was taking the bones out of his body. And I was like, wow. I don't know if I've ever quite been in that place, but I think it's a great... Um, it's a great way to think about it. It's it's all sort of self-examination. Yeah. Yeah, that's how do you I've I've accessed this place where you are writing a character and it's emotionally exhausting. It is emotionally exa- and and I that's when it flows. I've also had multiple friends and yeah, I'm sure you know a lot of playwrights that wonder how do you get to that area? How, how do you really start to feel? This is kind of coming yeah. back to your own humanness, but that's a, I, I feel like it's a, a common writing block that a lot of playwrights yeah. uh, hit into is this sort of dull feeling. You know, I think part of it is just um, writing past that stuff. You know, because yeah. it feels bad and you know it's not happening and then you want to just walk away. And it's figuring out, how to first of all, how to write past it. And then also writing stuff that's really bad. And I think that's like, there's sort of a prejudice against writing bad yeah. things. And it's really a shame. Yeah. And we don't show it to people when it's bad. You know, I have students that will take like a beginning class with me and they'll be like, well, I was going to send it to you, but it wasn't ready. Well, of course it's not ready. That's why you're taking a class. I can't help you if you won't show it to me until you think it's ready. So you have to find like your sort of safe people. Yeah. And you have to be willing to write crappy stuff, and then you have to be willing to hear crappy stuff out loud. But often, crappy stuff is the best stuff. Yeah. There's something in it, some, there's some little seed of the thing you were trying to do. Um, but I think that's like the, the biggest problem is wanting it to be good. Yeah. 
because you have that you have so much of yourself that is you're literally yeah. pulling from yourself and putting it into this so it's like almost this ambiguous representation of what you perceive your self-worth to be right yeah is, yeah and then if it's bad that people are somehow going to think less of you but they're not yeah you know um I, I do a lot of okay i say a lot of quotes but i you know there are certain times in my life where these quotes mean something to me and one that i had above my desk for a long time uh, which was a Richard Dresser quote, which was, if you're not writing, you're not setting the bar low enough. Hmm. Ooh. Yeah. So that's what my motto is, set the bar low. Yeah. And just work yeah. through that. Yeah, and he was like, so low that if I'm not tripping over the bar, it's too mm-hmm. high. So one of the things that I'm interested in, uh, in terms of being an artistic director, is that I feel like a term that I use a lot is you have to cultivate a culture that you want uh, mm-hmm. in association with your theater. And for a for id theater that puts on the Seven Devils Playwright uh, Convention, conference. which conference? Sorry, sorry, Seven forgiven. Devils Playwright Conference. I'm forgiven. Good. <laughs> <laughs> But th- these are new works. These are new works, and it's it's explicitly stated on the website that these should not be finished finished products. Mm-hmm. How do you go about cultivating culture where playwrights can come and be willing to let their plays go a little bit, so they can get their plays back and and refine them into the thing that they want? It's not easy because I think playwrights get burned a lot. Yeah. So we do sometimes spend time convincing playwrights by just by behavior. Um, that we mean what we say and that <clears throat> we don't expect it to be finished, it's okay. We were very fortunate that we have um, people like Amy Saltz, Christy Montour Larson, Dan Bennell, people who come back year after year after year as directors, dramaturgs, actors who practice that behavior. And, um, and I think the more we practice the behavior, um, you know, like we say things and then we try to really make sure that we're we're living them. It's not just fluff. Right. Yeah. All right. And the, and we also, we are very um, particular about making sure we say them out loud. Mm. And we say them out loud to the playwrights. And then we say them out loud to the playwrights and the director and the dramaturg and the actors all together. So we've all been in the room and heard the same thing. We talk about it almost constantly. And sometimes people say, like, well, we shouldn't have to talk about that. Everybody knows. But um, the truth is we have to be reminded because, first of all, because this is weird, usually we want to make everything good. So we have to constantly remind ourselves that that's not what we're doing here. So I, I think we do it by um, trying to behave it, calling each other on it when we're not doing it, and, and then just talking about it sort of endlessly like geeks. And then there's the, the fickle beast of feedback. Yes. Um, especially when you have an audience of essentially random people. I mean, not entirely random, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it can be any old person in McCall can come and see see this play. How do you guide feedback in terms of what uh, what you say in a table setting, and then how do you guide feed? Actually, I'll just start there. How do you guide feedback in a table setting? What are the the no nos and the yes yeses? <laughs> Some of them are the same all the time, which is. Um, Let's not suggest to the playwright what they should do. Yeah. Um, that's just always bad. Uh, questions are always good. I think it, at the table, I think as long as the discussion is, is around questions, it's always um, a positive thing. And as long as the questions are uh, about trying to get closer to what the playwright's trying to do, mm-hmm. um, rather than, like, because we can... We cannot like what the playwright is trying to do, or we cannot agree with what the playwright is saying, but we have to put that aside. 
and focus on what the play is trying to do. And I think about it as focusing on the play, not the playwright. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you try to focus on... You've said that every, yeah. I say, like, every, every play, night. Yeah. Yeah. every night. That's it's not you, it's not you. It's this yeah. character. Why does this character do this? What's going on with this character? What's this character's... You know, so that... I think a lot of it is figuring out how to phrase questions in a way that don't uh, cause trouble. Actually, somebody asked me earlier this week, like, I think there's a fact in that playwright's play that's that's wrong. Should I tell them? And I said, well, you know, what you could do is just say, hey, you know what? I thought this was true, but the play says that's true. What's the deal? You, you know, like how you figure out how to take the pressure off the question yeah. so it isn't like your play is wrong. Yeah. It's like, I'm trying to understand. Yeah, that's I have funny. a perception, and this play is presenting me an altering perception. And that's even, like, within the play itself. That's I think that's one of the biggest falling out points, is that you're introduced with an idea at the beginning of the play, and at the end of the play there's some sort of um, mismatch on right. alignment. And the playwright may have a reason. I remember once I wrote a play that where somebody says something that's not true, and uh, and somebody said to me, like, well, you're going to have to change that because it's not true. And I'm like, I'm not a science teacher. The, the character's just wrong. Yeah. You know, like, what the character's allowed to be wrong. And they're like, well, people might be confused. Well, they could go Google it then. <laughs> the character's just wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to move to, so, the, so it is specifically a development-only theater, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, where, so I'm assuming that was very, very early on when you met up with Sheila, but how did that idea, because I don't think I've ever heard of that idea, yeah in any other theater group except for it. How did that come about? Yeah, and there's a, there are a couple of others, but it is okay. it is pretty rare. Um, uh, I mean, actually, we came, Seven Devils was in the third year of id. Um, and the first few years of Seven Devils, like, we just had a great time, and we thought, well, we'll do it again, we'll do it again. And I think it was probably, let's see, probably six or seven years mm-hmm. in that, that Sheila, because we were sort of like, it was all under the sort of umbrella of id, but it had been in the intention of looking for place to develop originally, to, to produce. And we were like this other arm. It was like two arms. And I think at some point, like maybe five or six years in, that Sheila said, you know what? I, I think we don't want to produce anymore. What if we just, instead of looking for plays that we wanted to produce, what if the other id projects were also development? And so we started to develop other projects that would come out of uh, seven Devils, like doing readings in New York. We do a thing called Bridgeworks, which is supporting playwrights and sort of empowering them to move into either self-producing or co-producing or being an active part of production. And then we have a, a writer's group called Idiots at Play. Yeah. Um, so so what what have you produced from these development? Do, do you end up like... Do, we do not produce anything. Wow. Okay. Wow. But, it, but it's actually also what it is a great part of what we do is that it helps to kind of keep out any sense of competition. Because we say to somebody That's like, beautiful. there's nothing, I always say like, the playwright is the only person who should really have something material at, at, at stake in the room. We're not going to produce it. So you don't, none of you have to worry about that. It, it's collapsed a lot of great writing groups that I've been in, is that one person ends up getting produced at a theater and, oh, wow. and everybody else doesn't. So we don't have that. We don't have, that's like taking out the competition. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's one of the... I was talking to Amy just before this, actually, uh, and she said one of the best things about this is that there's no pressure. There's, like, there is... And you really feel it on stage. Actually, one of the choices that I'm really intrigued by... And I guess we can talk... It's not really an important question, but... um, 
the choice to make the set gray, mm -hmm. to make everything gray, and that's a representation of that this is not a complete thing. Um, who had that idea? I'm just curious. You know, seriously, I think it was either Lloyd Richards or Skip Mercer at the National Playwrights Conference, probably, oh. ooh, like 50 years ago. Um, okay. Yeah, a lot of what happens here in terms of the the style and the way we do the stage readings came pretty directly from, um, from the O'Neill, and Lloyd Richards, who was the um, first artistic director there, and Skip Mercer, who was a designer. Um, and <clears throat> it really is great because what we found is, like, I mean, people's imaginations, when I think back on plays that I've seen here or at the O'Neill, I see them on a set. You know, I remember them on a set, even mm. though there wasn't one. And, and again, it allows us to not spend time on that stuff. Um, because I don't want to spend time on that. I don't want to spend time on having a box office. I don't want to spend time <laughs> selling tickets. I don't want to spend time on any of that. And again, it takes the pressure off. Like, if somebody adds a refrigerator, then we just get a big box, and it's a refrigerator, yeah. you know? Whereas if you're in production, you're like, well, we added a refrigerator, and they're like, well, our budget is gone. We just don't have that problem. Yeah, yeah that's really nice. I'm just curious about uh, having the actors physically hold the script. Is that a thing that is typical of playwriting... Uh, conventions or um, conferences is the right word? I'm not really sure. Okay. I think every place has sort of a different view on it, but I do think it's an important question. Part of, one, an important part of making this kind of thing work is that we're setting up the audience for appropriate expectation. Yeah. And, and it's also that the grayness of the set helps that too. So the minute I put down my script and I start talking, it's a production. And so the audience is now expecting production-level yeah. work. So I'm kind of misleading. I'm making the, the smokes and mirrors of production that we don't want people to be confused by. So we're just trying to be, like, really clear all the time. We're reading this. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not trying to pretend that we're not reading it. Um, and that, I think that is a problem a lot of times when you go see readings and people have, like, they're trying to pretend they're not reading. Hmm. So, you can't. Either you're reading or you're not reading. You know, you can't be pretend reading. Yeah. Um, and and the thing is, like, for example, with our audience, if someone comes on stage and they don't have a script, the audience, like, they get it immediately because yeah. they're so used to it. That's how that's how this works. And we did have somebody a couple of years ago did, like, a quick change, and she ran on stage without her script, and the audience just, like, broke up. It was a comedy, so yeah. it was okay. And the people who were on stage with her didn't even get it at first, but, you know, yeah. the audience got it first. And then she went to talk, and she realized she didn't have it in her hand, and she was like, oh, my God. And then it was like a whole other laugh. And then she got, like, a standing ovation when she went off and got her script again. That's awesome. Um, but, yeah, it kind of, like, expectations in this kind of situation are really huge. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you have this, this audience. I forget. There's a quote that I want to quote, but I don't remember who said it, but it's... Oh my gosh, it's going to drive me crazy. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the description, maybe. Uh, but it's the idea that the artist decides what the audience needs to see. Mm -hmm. um, so y you've worked with a lot of modern plays, and you have a you have an interesting dichotomy of New York and Idaho. So you have some work with modern audiences, but I'm mm -hmm. curious what 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 does what do you, Jenny Mahoney, think uh, uh, modern audiences are craving for at this moment? Ugh. I think modern audiences, like, overall, not in New York, because okay. that's, like, a whole other yeah. atmosphere. Um, I think that they want 
to be, uh, you know, I talked um, the other night in one of the talkbacks about the idea of the mirror and the window. Yeah, I really like that. And I think people really hunger for a mirror that will serve as a window to others. Hmm. Um, it, the window itself it can be good, can be fantastic. People do want windows to new worlds. But I think more than anything, I remember, oh, there was this one play that we did that was by a local playwright. And, um, and the audience felt so much like it was a mirror to them. And their understanding that we have this mirror, and this mirror is going to go out, and now the world will see us. That the, this idea that I, I'm being represented, and because I'm being represented here, it's going to go out in the world. Mm. And I think that that's, that's what audiences, I think, are craving, and I think that's what too often we're not giving them. Just, just giving a window only? I think we're giving a lot of windows. Yeah. I think we're giving um, things that we think are mirrors, <laughs> yeah. but maybe aren't really. Yeah. Um, I think. I, I think that there's. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like listening to audiences at the talkback. I think we like to think we're giving a mirror, but really, the only person who can tell us if it's a mirror and if that mirror is working is an audience. Yeah. And. Uh, and sometimes audiences will say, like, well, that's not really a mirror. If we don't listen to that, then, yeah, you know. You fall into the trap of, uh, I, I've seen t too many plays that, at the end of it, I feel like the playwright uh, was demanding me to take a moral away at the end. Right. Was demanding me to, like, you have to feel this way at the end. And that's, I think that's what you're talking about, is it? I think that's a lot of it. I mean, I think anything that tries to... Yeah. Tell me who I am, who I should be, what I should think. Um, you know, because that's different than manipulating, like, reality and presenting me with something that is definitely, you know, definitely that person's point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, sometimes I think it can feel sort of preachy-judgy. Yeah. And that doesn't actually, I, I think that doesn't elicit any sort of change, actually. The, yeah. You know, the strongest change is what the audience, it's, it's a week after the play and the audience is still thinking about it. And mm -hmm. that's like, they're like, oh, I... I I shouldn't. When they're buying a coat and they've seen, uh, they've seen one of the plays was Modern Slave uh, yeah. about uh, Chinese slavery, essentially. Uh, but that's that's a week later when you're about to buy that piece of clothing. I think that's where the real change comes from. Yeah, because and that's what I love about that play because it would be so easy, and we've seen so many plays where it's like you know that's bad. You yeah. Know? Modern, modern slavery is bad. Well, duh, yeah, we all know that. Yeah. You know, but then it's like, well, how do we talk about the questions we're asking ourselves and what we do about them yeah. is a little bit more interesting. Yeah, and that's, there's, a, there's a power in not quite providing an answer also. Because... Yeah, and what I also think, I think theater is um, it's a conversation. And so if you're just like, want to tell people something, you could just have a lecture. Yeah. Um, but I like conversation. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I, I think that's the main thing people say, like, what do you look for? And I have plays that I think are a conversation. Yeah, yeah that, that elicit a dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, all right, we're rounding out at about an a, a half hour right now. Is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, you know, mm, no. 
No? I thought about it. I know. You were searching I like, for it for I know. Well, it's like, I have a couple of things, but I'm like, I don't know. Should I go there? I'm, I'm, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's I'll go. go. I'll go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, really quick. Yeah. yeah. I do think that one thing, um, the, because the because it's about artistic directors, mm-hmm. uh, two, two things, actually. So one is uh, that I find challenging right now is the idea that there are plays that are good and there are bad, and that theaters should pick good plays. I don't think that there is such a thing. I and I hear people in all corners sort of bemoaning that like, you know, they choice play choice. And I think uh plays only a theater that loves your play should do it. They shouldn't mm-hmm. do it because it checks a box. They shouldn't do it because they think it's good but it doesn't really work for them. You only want people who are passionate about your play to do it. And if you're an artistic director, you only want to do plays you're passionate about because it is so hard to it's so much time and energy and money that you should work on a play for any other reason is ridiculous. It's not going to be great work if you don't love the play. So that's the first thing. Yeah. The second thing I think from an artistic director point of view is um I think I think it's okay to have an artistic vision and and stick to it. And I think sometimes that that gets uh a little muddy and people aren't sure how to pe- people aren't sure sometimes how to talk about uh how to stay with their artistic vision and still be open to artistic choices mm. and um Sometimes you have to have a hard conversation and say, hey, this is a hard conversation, <laughs> and then have it. So that's something I think. I've just been realizing lately there's a lot of times where, we kinda, I, where I come up against hard conversations, and I feel like people are avoiding the hard conversation. Yeah. And, um, I mean, if we're not having the hard conversation, I have no idea what we're doing here. Yeah. You know, That's, like, seriously what it's all about. Yeah. Um, so that's all. I just like to see more hard conversations. Yeah, that's... So I, I want to ask a follow-up question, just because I'm curious. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the, the ideas that I have, one of the actually inciting ideas that made this podcast happen was um, when you're an artistic director, you have a group of people that come together under your theater entity mm-hmm. that all have individual intents and their own quote-unquote artistic directions. Right. Whether or not they've explicitly stated that or not. How do you, as an artistic director... Uh, give credence to all of their directions mm-hmm. while still sort of funneling them into a way that fits what the theater is is wanting or the the yeah. the goal of the theater. I do think that's one of the um, the trickiest things in some ways, but also one of the simplest things in some ways. I, I try to make really clear to everyone who comes here that um, that I'm a safe place um, and that. Mm. You know, you can come talk to me about anybody in this company. And some of these people are like, my best friends have been my best friends forever, but I know that they're not perfect. And I know that not everybody gets along. And I know that it's not the best thing for the play to go and and muck muck that up. You know, I want to listen to everybody with respect. And always coming from the point of view that what people want is the best for the play. And that usually what my job ends up being is sort of navigating where the mis- miscommunication is. It's usually a miscommunication or a misunderstanding, and how to navigate that in such a way that I am, that I remain a person that people can trust and feel like they can talk to. And if, yeah. because if that's gone, 
And also sometimes, like, if I'm at a theater company, sometimes, like, I'm not sure if I'm somebody who can talk to the artistic director or should. So um, I think one of the things that I try to do as an artistic director is, like, make sure that that everybody, um, I tell everybody as much as I can, like, you know, tell me anything. It could be nothing, and that's fine. Just tell me. It's better to tell me. Yeah. Um, and I will respect everybody's um, need to, you know, not... Nobody should ever feel like I'm going to go say, oh, so-and-so said so-and-so. But, you know, it, I can do it. You know, I can figure <laughs> out how to take that thing you told me yeah. and go to talk to somebody else about it and without... You know, that's my job, mm-hmm. is to figure out... I used to, I used to say I'm the bad news. You know, my job is to come in the room and give the bad news or have the difficult conversation. Like, if I'm not willing to do that, I should not be the artistic director. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm in a place where I'm able to be a good artistic director, I can do that and at the same time make it seem like the best thing that ever happened. Yeah, that's, and there's a very beautiful phrasing that you use, which is, I am a safe space. I've heard this is a safe space before. Mm-hmm. But that's, and now that I've heard that phrasing, saying this is a safe space is so impersonal. Mm-hmm. It's so because you're, you're not, first of all, you're not always technically in the space itself. Right. But yeah, it, it, it takes responsibility because that's one of the best traits of an artistic director is that everyone needs to be able to feel comfortable telling you anything. Yeah. Um, which is, so uh, there's not really a question attached to that. Just, well, I'll take it though. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and also I'm, I am anything, I'm responsible. It's my responsibility. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's basically my job. If anyone is trying to find either you or the id theater uh, online or do you have any plugs for, you know, the future? Oh, let's see. Yeah, well, we're at idtheater.org, so you can find everything there. And we're on Facebook and uh at id theater and um you know, if you're in New York, we do playwriting series in New York, uh monthly, third Monday of every month, but that's all on the website. You know, not really. I mean, everything that we do is sort of on the website. Mostly what happens is you go to the website and you can take a look and see uh, what plays that we worked on here are coming someplace near you. And I like to end the podcast with this. Can I get one recommendation of anything at all? It can be a movie, a book, a way of life, a quote, <laughs> anything whatsoever. Oh, let's see. Gosh, I've got so many recommendations. I know, right? <laughs> Shout out to Andrew Hinderocker. Okay. If you get to see the play Colossal in your lifetime see it okay awesome uh well jenny thank you so so much for sitting down and defeating well not defeating bronchitis but working through the bronchitis it'd be so great if i defeated it yeah um you can find this podcast on facebook and soundcloud uh and thank you so much listener for listening and i hope you have a wonderful rest of your day